Thank you for tuning in to Avant Life's weekly podcast. We hope this message inspires you, stirs your faith, and leaves you blessed. Church, Upside Down Kingdom, part three. We're excited, aren't we? Yes. We've done six of the Beatitudes so far. If you're joining us for the first time online, this whole series is about discussing the Beatitudes, the teachings of Christ from uh, the Sermon on the Mount, as well as his parables as he began and continues in our modern era to challenge the social and cultural norms of this world and begins to ask us not just to reject them, but to partake in how he's asked us to do it, not simply as a mere suggestion, but but as a definite obligation. I know that sounds weird, but this morning I really want to tell you, I need to, I need to impress upon your consciousness right now, like right now how earnest I want to be with you is this, is that we can't take the Beatitudes, what we've spoken about, as mere suggestions. It's not an optional thing. Um, I thought to myself, you know, we preach often and we don't take time to stop and say, hey, this is not optional as a Christian. Like Jesus didn't say, hey, oh, you get to do whatever you want to do, but it'd be good if you did this. Actually, when you read the Beatitudes, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is describing how you would be recognized in heaven. Isn't that interesting? Like, like before you step into heaven, before you step into the full glory, the judgment seat of Christ, he's going to be asking things like, were you merciful? Hmm. Were you pure of heart? Oh man, I'm in trouble. Today we're talking about, are you a peacemaker? But like at the end of the day, Jesus is describing the pathway to heaven on the sermon, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. That's what he's talking about. This message is from God and it's to urge you to get on the right path. That's what it is. Not a stay on the path that you like and then just call Jesus your saviour and you're all good. That's not what he's saying. This pathway is so you could be called a son and daughter of God at the last day of judgment. I know in the modern era of Christianity, we do like to talk about all the things that you get and all the authority you have, which is all good that you're the head and not the tail, that you're victorious, not looking for victory. Hey, I want to tell you right now that you are more than a conqueror. I'm not describing that as a facetious thing or trying to patronise you. I am actually saying you are more than a conqueror. There's an if. (laughs) Hey, there's an if. It's like saying, hey, I am self-qualified sheriff of Nottingham. Because I said it out loud and you can't undo that now. So I am what I am and I said what I said and I'm not, I don't regret it. And you all have to now live with the fact that that's what I am. But if I never go to Nottingham, if I never get trained, if I never become the sheriff, I never, well, it means nothing. So if I walk around and say, well, I've got all the authority on earth to be a son of God and I can you know, bring down fire and brimstone and I can shift the, the mountains and you know, divide waters, I can do all these oh, miracles, pour down wonder, Lord God. But I haven't done nothing to see the transformation in my life. Can I tell you, but it's but lip service. It's entertainment. And, and I don't know about you, but Jesus didn't come to entertain us. That would, be, that would be the worst outcome. He didn't come to entertain us. He didn't come to entertain the kings and the lords of this world. He didn't come to entertain what this world sees as appropriate. He came to challenge it. He came to turn it upside down. He came to offer us a pathway. And this morning, you need to know with each and every beatitude, there is another nail that is driven into the coffin. And inside this coffin lies the false understandings of salvation. Do you understand that? Jesus is talking about salvation here. He's not talking about, let's just, you can do better. 
He's actually with each and every beatitude driving home. These are the expectations that come with the transformation of salvation. You're not just a convert, you're a disciple. See, the false understanding says that I can be a person that is saved without being changed. That's false. Pentecostals, listen to me right now. That is a false thing. You cannot be saved and remain unchanged. That is not something that the Bible or Jesus ever teaches. And so as much as we want to, and we do live by grace, that grace is to obtain change, not to remain the same. He says, you are a new creation, not an old one with a new skin. It's not that a person can inherit eternal life even if his attitudes and actions are like that of an unbeliever's. There's no fake Christians in the kingdom of God. You know, well, that's really harsh. We all make mistakes and fall short of the glory of God. Absolutely we do. But your innermost being must be set, it must be focused and our eyes must be cast upon Jesus each and every day with the desire to be changed. And in that desire, in that devotion, in that discipline and surrender, you will be changed. If you're not doing that, but just simply saying it, then you're giving lip service. This is not the heart of repentance, but someone who wants their cake and eating it at the same time. One after the other, the Beatitudes tell us that the blessings of eternity will be given only to those who become new creations, new creatures. For example, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure at heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacekeepers, for they shall be called sons of God. If we don't obtain mercy, we receive judgment. If we don't see God, we are not in heaven. Isn't this interesting? If we aren't called sons of God, we are outside the family. These are all descriptions of final salvation. Isn't, that, isn't it beautiful? Because I love it as it's promised only to the merciful, to the pure at heart, to the peacekeepers, or the peacemakers, sorry, not peacekeepers. Matthew 5 verse 9, we read, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Let's look at that today. We've got communion coming up. And I love this one because as we discuss this, we're going to understand more than ever how beautiful and how powerful as sons and daughters of God communion really is. And so at the end of this message, we're going to go back into worship and then Pastor Matt's going to come up and he's going to lead us through communion and it's going to be beautiful. So make sure you're ready for that. But right now, let's take this beatitude of, you know, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. And let's begin to reflect. There's a few points we could spend, I mean, hours talking about this one beatitude. We could, but I've picked a few thoughts that I believe God wants us as a church to focus on in relation to this. Number one, like father, like son. This is my point, like father, like son. When Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. He's not telling us how to become a son of God. Rather, Jesus is simply saying that sons of God are in fact peacemakers. Does that make sense to you? People who are peacemakers will be recognised as sons of God at the judgment and welcomed into the Father's house. It's not that you have to become a peacemaker to become a son of God. Simply by knowing God, being in relationship with God would inherently make you, transform you, change you, 
into a peacemaker. Ever heard the saying, what walks in the Father runs in the Son? Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I look at my own son. He, is, he looks like me, I know. Handsome, charismatic, but he's a hustler. Guess that from his mum. No one believed that, hey? Oh, it's a phone. I just felt like hundreds of faces across online being like, that's a lie. He straight up lied to us. He lied on stage. <laughs> but what's even weirder is that you're not upset. <laughs> Except for that one person who's writing a complaint right now. Complaints at avantlifechurch.com. It's my burner account. That's where all my Domino's vouchers go. <laughs> I'm kidding. It doesn't exist. You can just write to me. Um, Levi is so like me in many ways. In many ways, he's like Emma. and In all the good ways, like Emma. But all the, the ways that I know that's going to get him out of a hard situation, he got from me. When he was but five years old and started kindergarten, Pokemon cards were a big thing for him and we would never buy him Pokemon cards. But one day, uh, his friend gave him one Pokemon card. And he was over the moon. You remember this baby came home. He's like, my friend gave me a Pokemon card. I'm like, yeah, buddy, you know what? Good for you. I'm like, great, here starts something. And I, I kid you not, I told him, hey, you've been given one talent. Master's gonna return soon. What are you gonna do? You're gonna multiply it? You're gonna bury it? Just saying, bro, just saying. All right, Levi, it's up to you. Well done, good and faithful son. I kid you not, by the end of the year, Levi had taken one card and multiplied it into 400 Pokemon cards without us buying him any. He hustled. He hustled hard. He was bringing new Pokemon cards home, and I mean new, like the unopened ones. (laughs) What freaks me out is there's a parent right now telling this very same story saying, you know what, my kid went with brand new Pokemon cards, came home with really old ones. (laughs) We don't know what happened. What walks in the Father runs in the Son. See, if you want to see how to become a son of God, we simply look at the Gospel of John 1.12. It says, Yet to all who did, did receive Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Yet to all who did receive Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right, I love that, to become children of God. Galatians 3.26, Paul writes, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. That's how you become a child of God, a son and daughter of God. You receive Him. You believe in His name and He gives you, He gives it to you. You can't earn it. You can't die on the cross for it. He's done it already. You just simply have to have faith. In other words, We become sons of God, daughters of God by trusting in Christ for our forgiveness and our hope. What a simple equation, right? But then you look throughout your day and how often do we actually lean into the forgiveness and the grace that we have and the hope that He gives us or how much do we lean into our own ability to achieve the things we need in this world? And I always get freaked out. I had this thought many years ago Look at the technology we have around us. It's amazing, isn't it? Um, But what I know from my studies into technology is that technology is heavily driven by money. 
and who controls money. And so this might come to a sh- as a shock to you, but not all technology we have access to is the best technology out there. It's just the most financially profitable for certain people. Doesn't that freak you out? That you thinking you're living your best life with the most top technology and understanding at the tip of your, your fingers, but really somebody out there got something better that's keeping it away from us. And I was like, all the conspiracy theorists in Avant Life right now, you hit it up, you post right now, Instagram, you go there, Pastor Ben's on your side with this one. <laughs> but, but at the end of the day, there's been studies, like we had VHS for so long, though there was better technology. Why? Because the guys that invented VHS marketed it better to those who had the investment monies to make it possible. And therefore, we didn't have the best technology, even though we could have, because somebody did better marketing. Doesn't this freak you out? It should freak you out. It should, it should, it should make you think about your own faith when it comes to Jesus. Are you doing everything in your own strength more often, worse technology, or are you giving it to Jesus and getting the better outcome, the best technology? Right, because the, the, the first one tells us that it's all about things of this world, how I can make better investments, how it's gonna make more money. The other one is how can we achieve the most in this world through the better outcomes of Christ? Are you living an old tech life in the things of this world or are you living an advancing, cutting edge and avant tech life in Jesus? Because at the end of the day, this might sound weird to you, like father, like son. My Jesus ain't a backward Jesus. He turned up 2,000 years ago and he turned this world on his head. He said things that still reverberate today. He challenged you know, mindsets that didn't shift and are still you know, complicating this world today. And he's asking us, hey, would you be like dad? Are you gonna be like the world? Are you gonna run like dad? Are you gonna trip and you're gonna crawl never knowing that you have a father that's trying to welcome you home. You're going to stay in the pigsty. You're going to eat the slop. You're going to get tummy ache like Pastor Matt every time he eats pizza. Are you going to receive him? Are you going to believe in his name? Are you going to step out in the right that he's given you to be called a son and daughter of God? Because as soon as you do that, you become a peacemaker. My next point is this. So like father, like son, the great prince of peace. Jesus brought peace between man and God. Man, for so long, when I was a new Christian, I thought Jesus came and beat the enemy and and destroyed the devil. And he did. And he put him in his place. Always had that imagery. You know, if you grew up in the 90s, you'd remember a guy called Carmen. No, Colin? You didn't grow up. You were made in the 90s, weren't you? Yeah. Steve, come on. But there's this guy called Carmen, and he would do like soundtracks and like do like really dramatized video clips about, you know, I went, it's almost like the Christian version of The Devil Went Down to Georgia. That's what it felt like. I love that song. 
And I think to myself, like so often we're like, Jesus came down and he beat the enemy and now we have authority and he defeated the grave and he did all these things and it's all wonderful. But you know, his main thing was to restore man back into relationship with God. He brought peace between a rebelling humanity and a loving father. That was his job. He was the great mediator, the great redeemer. He paid the price for our restoration. He is, when we say the Prince of Peace, He doesn't just bring peace into your life. He has paid for peace by being the ransom so that we could be restored. He is the Prince of Peace because He stepped down from His heavenly throne and He went places He shouldn't have had to have gone, but He went there for us so that we could have freedom. He is the Prince of Peace because He is the royalty of peace because He bows to no one, but gives it to everyone. How beautiful is that? So when He says, beautiful is the feet of those who bring the gospel of peace, because our God is the God that loves peace, pursues peace. He sent His Son for peace. The Prince of Heaven, the Darling of Heaven, steps down and becomes the peacemaker. Tell me right now, if you know Jesus, how can you not be a peacemaker when His very mission is peace? Jesus says that to us when He teaches on the mount. We just read it. He says it in Scripture that the Heavenly Father is a God of peace. We see this in Romans 16, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5, Hebrews 13. I felt Spanish all of a sudden. Barcelona. The heaven, he says that heaven is a world of peace. We see that in Luke 19. It's important for all of us that God is a peacemaker. 2 Corinthians, Colossians 1. It is inundated through Scripture that our God is a God of peace. And I know what you're all thinking out there that are loving conflict. Yeah, but he didn't say peacekeeper. He said peacemaker. That means you've got to go to war. <laughs> Good luck. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says that God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And He was committed to us. So He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. He's committed to us the message of reconciliation. Before we had turned from our sins, before anyone had said sorry to Him, before we had surrendered to Him, He had reconciled us to Himself through Christ, not counting our sins against us because he was committed to peace. Colossians 1.20 says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Can I ask you right now, how often have you seen peace negotiations happen where the person who's done nothing wrong accepts what the person who's done everything wrong and then pays the price for that person's wrong just so that person who doesn't want to at that time be in relationship with him would have the opportunity in the future to say yes to him? That sounds dumb to me. But how upside down is that? Because when I look at, like, we're going to have peace negotiations. It's like, what can you give me? What compromise can we have? What is going to meet in the middle? Imagine if we had a halfway God. Oh, we would be in so much trouble. Especially Andrew. And me. I've got to say me because I felt bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you see him on Chef Ben? Anyway. He's come a long way, cut his hair, shaved his beard, read his Bible, it's good. I love that even though by nature we are rebels against God, we have committed high treason against Him, we are worthy to be sort of eternally court-martialed. 
though that our punishment should have been hung and drawn, nevertheless, God sacrificed His own Son. So when we say, for God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. Come on, that's not a placard you wave at a sporting arena. That's a placard that you wear on your heart as a reminder that we serve the Prince of Peace, that He, even though we were in rebellion against Him, took our place on that table of sacrifice in the negotiations. That is crazy. That image just freaks me out that imagine you coming to the altar of payment. It's you and Jesus. And somebody's got to get on that. And somebody's got to pay the price. And somebody's going to get a hurt. I'm not saying who. <laughs> but you're there with Jesus. And you'd want to think that you'd be willing to hop on the altar. But we all know that without His restoration power in our life that we have now, the vision we have now, we would be demanding Him get on. That's hard to comprehend. And how do you know that, Pastor Ben? Because the people of the time when Jesus was crucified ain't no different from you and me. They all yell, set Barabbas free. They didn't see, hey, let Jesus go. I want to name my dog that's going to be a pit bull, Barabbas. Do you know why? So when somebody comes to my house, somebody going to get a hurt. When they're not meant to be there, I can simply say to Levi, release Barabbas. <laughs> God is a peace-loving God, even after my comments. He's a peacemaking God. The whole of history of redemption, climaxing in the death and resurrection of Jesus is God's strategy to bring about a just, I mean, a just and lasting peace. Oh, a just and lasting peace between rebel man and himself and then between man and his fellow man. He wasn't just finished with him and us. He wanted us to be good too. He created us to be in a healthy relationship with one another. He didn't just say, hey, you're getting to heaven and we'll deal with it later. He's like, no, I have come so that you would have peace and peace among one another. After World War I, they signed the Treaty of Versailles. And that treaty was terrible. Terrible because it didn't think through the ramifications of what it was asking of the German nation. It was unsustainable. It didn't show peace it showed power. It didn't show compassion or mercy. It, can show, it just showed complete belligerence towards a nation. And we fast forward 20 years, the rise of Adolf Hitler was birthed and powered on, the, on man's peace treaty of Versailles. Isn't that interesting that man's peace leads to greater war? But God's peace leads to everlasting redemption. God's children have the character of their father. What he loves, they love. What he pursues, they pursue. Hmm. This is a hard one. You know that you're a child of God by whether or not you're willing to make sacrifices for peace the way that God did. Sacrifices, not compromises, sacrifices. It's beautiful. By the sovereign work of God's hand, rebels like you and me are born again, brought from rebellion to faith and made children of God. 
1 John 3, 9 says, No one who is born of God will continue in sin. No one. Because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. If He is a peacemaker, then His children who have His nature will be peacemakers too. We serve the Prince of Peace. My third point is this. It's a piece of fruit. You like that pun? It's a good pun. I came up with that last night. I was really happy. So happy I ate a dime bar from, from uh, Ikea and then got heartburn. Should have eaten fruit. Oh, but dime bars and coffee are so good. Okay, let's just leave it. God, it's good for good, good, good father. Give me good dime bars. All right. Spirit of God is the spirit of peace. Boom. Done. That's my point. Spirit of God is the spirit of peace. I'll put this another way. Galatians 4, 6. It says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Romans 8, 14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Being led by the Spirit, which is really important, always includes being and bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of peace or the fruit of the Spirit includes peace. We're called to be peacemakers. Children of God must be peacemakers. It's by the Spirit of God that we become and are made into children of God. Therefore, if the Spirit is doing the work of transformation and the Spirit of God is the Spirit of peace, then we ourselves must be peacemakers. We do not earn it. We don't merit the privilege of being called sons of God. Rather, we owe our new birth to the sovereign grace of God. We are our faith to the impulses of the new birth and we receive the Holy Spirit by the exercise of our faith. This is all found in the book of John, 1 John, Galatians, like the disciples, the apostles, they write about this. The fruit of the Spirit is peace, Galatians 5.22. And those who bear the fruit of peace are the sons of God. So blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. You do not, and I mean this, you don't become peacemakers any other way by receiving Jesus, by accepting the transformational power of the Spirit, becoming more like the Father. This is my favourite one. This is my last point, and then we're going to get conclusion. Okay, Mark? Yeah, conclusion is after this point, so it's technically two points. But we say conclusion, so you all feel like the plane's about to land. One man's peacekeeper is another man's warlord. One man's peacemaker is another man's warlord. Think about that. I spent a lot of time in Asia. I spent two years there. I studied there at a university to get my grade 12 certificate. And uh, some of my best friends and closest friends in, um, in that university were from Jordan. And this was back in 2005, 2006. Uh, and you can imagine the, the, the world geopolitical dynamic at that time. A lot of those Arab nations and people from those Arab nations weren't viewed fondly in light of 9-11, the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan and all that was going on and the West's war on terrorism. And I remember 
there was a group of them. There's like five or six of them and two of them are really good friends with. And they came to university one day all wearing uh, camo pants, green camo pants, boots and a black shirt. And on the back of it, it said freedom fighter. <laughs> and I asked him, I said, bro, you guys all look like terrorists. <laughs> well dressed, give you that. We've been working out, but you know, young Ben was like, you look like a terrorist. And he turns to me, he says, he said, Ben, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. And I know it sounds like simple like ideology, but it got me, got me thinking a lot. I haven't, I haven't forgotten that moment in time ever, which is, isn't that relative to how we view the world? That, that what we're told is one thing to another person is something completely different. And so this is why I want to talk about this, because it raises a tough question. If it's your fault when the stand you take causes division, is it your fault? Because to be a peacemaker is not to be a doormat. But it's not to be a warring, you know, conflict monger either. So if you have alienated someone and brought down their anger upon your head because you've done or said what is right, have you ceased to be a peacemaker? That's the question. I think it's an important one because it's one that we must confront as believers. And the, the answer to that is simply this, not necessarily not necessarily, not yes or no, just not necessarily. So Paul says, if possible, live at peace. If possible, live at peace. He thus admits that there will be times that standing for truth will make it impossible. See, for example, in 1 Corinthians 11, 18 to 19, he says, I hear there is a division among you and I believe it in part for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognised. <laughs> See, Paul wouldn't have said this if he, if he thought or if he meant that genuine Christians were to compromise the truth in order to prevent division at all costs. He didn't say that here. In fact, he precisely because some of the Christians were genuine and genuine peacemakers decides to say this. He's saying, hey, I know there's factions among you. I know there's issues. But I also know this because it helps me understand who genuine Christians are. Why? Because they're going to be the real peacemakers. All of a sudden, I start looking at that and go, whoa. Are we known for for our Christianity by the way we dress and how we talk on stage or how we, we commune with each other? Or are we known because of how we operate in hard situations with when that gets tested? Because Paul's saying here, hey, I can, it's good. I can tell you apart when things get hard. It's a good thing. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemy enemies will be those of his own household. Ever read this and be like, hmm. <laughs> watch out, Dad, here I come. <laughs> Shouldn't have put that curfew on when I was 19. You know, Jesus, in other words, says this, you must love peace and work for peace. You must pray for your enemies and do good by them and greet them and long for barriers between you both to be overcome. But you must never abandon your allegiance to Him or His Word, no matter how much 
animosity, it brings down on your head. You are not guilty. You are not in the wrong if your life of obedience and the message of love and truth elicits hostility from someone and affirmation from others. I'll put it in words that you might understand or not that you're dumb, but I know I said that quickly. He's simply saying this, hey, you're not in trouble because you're stuck to my word. You followed me well. Some people are gonna love you for it. Some people are gonna hate you for it. So is it. It's the way of the world. I didn't come here to bring peace. I came to bring a dividing sword. What is he dividing? Because I told you, his mission was to bring peace between man and God. And in that, we would become in peace with one another as we abide in God. But there's not everyone that's gonna accept it. So just like Paul said, factions are always gonna exist. There's always gonna be divisions. And our hope is that as Christians, we would do our best to overcome those barriers, to be peacemakers. But at some point, you are not in control of someone else's response. Therefore, they might show hostility or animosity towards you. Do not wear that as guilt. One man's peacekeeper is another man's warlord. This is my conclusion and it's important. Isn't it funny when we read this and we read the other Beatitudes, but in particularly we go through what this means, all of a sudden the question is this. It seems that peacemaking is simply confined to the personal dimension and not to the things of this world. Right? Everything that Jesus is saying is, hey, you need to repent. You need to be transformed. You need to be a peacekeeper or a peacemaker, sorry. He doesn't say, hey, and then you're going to go and you're going to bring this peacemaking ideology. It's going to change the world and there's going to be no more wars and there's going to be no more conflict because all of a sudden we'd ask over the last, you know, we could just look at the last 200 years and wonder, like if that was the case, if, if these things aren't just personal issues and insignificant, then, and then why, why are we looking at nuclear war or military budgets that are higher than aid budgets? Why are we talking about arms agreements in you know, Geneva? Or why, is, why did apartheid exist for so long or civil wars in Central America? Why is there you know, religious oppression in China and Russia and Romania? Why is there the terrorism internationally? Why is all this stuff going on? Hey, you know, why is that insignificant to the personal dimensions of peacemaking? Isn't there bigger things we need to apply this to? Shouldn't we change the world? It's funny, right? Because that's how it is. It's like a beauty pageant. (laughs) I I would want world peace. Would you? There's no money in it. But as Christians, we so quickly take what is afflicting us and we apply it to an outside circumstance so that we can be a part of the change and never be changed ourselves. Hey, isn't it interesting? We'd love to change everything else, but not change ourselves. But Jesus doesn't allow us to. It was no different for Jesus in His time. We talk about this all the time in relation to the fact that he was, he was born into a time and period where the Roman Empire ruled with an iron fist. And you know, the worst of the worst, a lot of the atrocities were not spared in Palestine, in Israel. They saw some of the worst atrocities. They were treated as subhuman. And Jesus is born here. So was he unaware 
of what the Roman Empire had done to the tiny state and nation of, of Israel without their consent? Was he aware that they slaughtered 3,000 Jews at Passover celebration? Was he aware that the Roman soldiers can conscript any Jew to carry their bags at any time, at any moment? Was he aware that Pilate, the one that set Barabbas free, had his soldiers bludgeon a crowd of Jews protesting his stealing from the temple treasury? Was he aware that Pilate massacred Jews on the temple ground and mixed their blood with their sacrifices they were offering? When Jesus spoke of enemies, He knew who He was speaking about. When He said, love your enemies, He saw Pilate long before Pilate saw Him. Think about that. His countrymen, Galileans, murdered, and their blood put into the sacrifices of the temple. Yet on this mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called sons of God. Why did he confine himself to prayer and personal greetings and blessings and individual deeds of generosity and kindness? Why didn't he talk about the issues of national humiliation, of Roman oppression, political corruption, or unbridled military of his day? Why was he utterly out of touch with the big issues of his day? He wasn't. He just understood that social injustices demand personal repentance. He says in Chronicles, if my people who are called by my name, if they humbled themselves, if they repent, I would hear from heaven. He doesn't say the whole world. He says, my people called by my name would have a a repentance that is personal. Then I would begin to bring social justice, not social justice bringing personal repentance. There's no better way to explain this than in Luke 13, 1 to 5, where he says, there were some present at the time that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than uh, all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He faced down the innocent killing of his people with saying this, yeah, I get it. But have you repented? That's what he said. How many times do we come to God and we say things like, did you see what they did, God? Did you hear what they're saying about me? Did you see my work? Did you see what they do to Christians? Look how, God, would you just pour out? Would you do stuff? Would you make a way? But we're really saying it out of vengeance, not out of peace. You can do these things and you can come to Him, but I can promise you each and every time, Father, like Son, Prince of Peace, Peacemaker will say, but have you repented? Have you made peace with me yourself before you cast judgment on others? He took major social outrage of injustice and He turned it to a demand for personal and individual repentance. I want this in my life each and every day. Every time I am outraged about something like Black Lives Matter, 
like someone innocently getting killed, like the, the death rate by guns in the United States or, or the, the corruption that takes place in Western nations or, or the COVID restrictions that make no sense in certain areas. When we start to get outraged, how could they do this? And how could I want those comments and those problems in my life, those afflictions to point me back to Jesus and for Him to say, but are you at peace with me, Ben? Have you repented? If you come to Jesus with the question about taxes, what is He going to say to you? Give unto Caesar's, which is Caesar's. Give to God, which is God's. If you come to God, come to Jesus with a complaint about injustice of your brother who will not divide his inheritance with you, he will turn it into a warning of your own conscience. He says this in Luke, and I'm going to leave it here. 12, 14, 15, he says this. Man who made me a judge or arbiter over you, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. (laughs) We can come to God, come to Christ with all our problems. The question is, in the depths of your heart, have you been transformed into a peacemaker? Or are you coming to Him as a warlord, asking Him to do your dirty work for you? Are you trying to pretty up the walls of your disgrace with the white walls of righteousness and, and somehow pass it off as, as you know, generosity or being genuine? Can I tell you? He says, hey, I promise you at some point those white walls will come crashing down. I want to be a church. I want to be a, pe- a person. I want to be a leader that is a peacemaker. And I understand I'm not going to be a doormat. But at the end of the day, I want to know that those who are offended with me have no right or no claim to my generosity because, or that I've been disingenuous or I've been unauthentic. I want to be able to stand before Christ and say, I did everything I could, God. I didn't violate your word and I tried to build every barrier, but they still rejected me. And he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. This is not you. I recognise my son in you because, are you guys ready to worship on this? Blessed are the peacemakers for they'll be called sons of God. hope you enjoyed this message we would love you to subscribe to our weekly podcast other ways you can connect with avant life is through youtube instagram and facebook or check out our website at avantlifechurch.com